0: So, Romans chapter 10, Romans chapter 10. uh, We're going to be diving into verses 5 through 13. If you don't have a Bible, we provide blue Bibles underneath your seats, and page 946 will bring you uh, to that text this morning. I titled today's sermon um, The Word of Faith. The word of faith, you'll see that in in your bulletin in the outline. Uh, That exact phrase, I didn't make that up, that exact phrase is used by Paul in the text that we will be uh, looking at today. And before we go any further, what I want to do is just, I want to tell you right up front what it means. Okay? What it means. The word of faith, the word of faith, is the word or message. Okay? Message that the apostles of Jesus Christ proclaimed concerning God's salvation. It is the word or message that the apostles of Jesus Christ proclaimed concerning God's salvation. And it is a message that calls for faith or requires a response of faith. And when one responds to this message in faith, they are forever saved. Forever saved. Beloved, the word of faith is really nothing less and nothing more than the gospel, than the gospel, okay? The gospel says to us, trust in the truth concerning Jesus, and you will be saved. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Now, whatever you do, whatever you do, I don't want you to confuse the word of faith that we find here in, in Romans with the Word of Faith Movement. The Word of Faith Movement. How many of you are familiar at all with what I just said, the Word of Faith Movement? A few, a few of you. Okay. Some of you may not be familiar with it, but you may have been influenced by it. You may have been influenced by it. Uh, this movement is influenced by a number of high-profile pastors, and maybe some of you will recognize these names, and if you don't know these names, that's fantastic, actually. Uh, such as Kenneth Hagen, uh, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Paul and Jan Crouch, and Frederick Price, just to name a few. And while the movement claims to be Christian, I can assure you it is absolutely unbiblical. It is absolutely unbiblical. Uh, Eric mentioned uh, false teachers and, and the importance of us knowing our doctrine in the Word of God because uh, false teachers are everywhere, it's prolific. And that that has been the case since the church was born, and it continues to be the case in the 20th, 21st century. Uh, here is, I'm going to read this to you, just because I think it's important, and because I believe so many have been influenced by it, and because we're going to be looking at the statement, the Word of Faith. I want to read this. It's an extended quote uh, from a source that I've used before. It's called gotquestions.org. gotquestions.org. It's a great uh, resource on the internet. You simply can ask a question, and it, and it attempts to give you a, a biblical response to that question. And for the most part, I found it to be a very faithful and, and biblically consistent and true. So that's why I recommend it. But here's what they say concerning the Word of Faith movement. And it'll be up on the screen, but I'll just read it. The Word of Faith movement grew out of the Pentecostal movement in the late 20th century. Its founder was E.W. Kenyon, who studied the metaphysical new thought teachings of Phineas Quimby. Mind science, where name it and claim it, originated. This idea that uh, I just name something, and then by faith I claim it, and it'll be mine. So whatever that is, was combined, this thinking, that idea was combined with Pentecostalism, resulting in a peculiar mix of Orthodox Christianity and mysticism. Kenneth Hagin, in turn, studied under E.W. Kenyon and made the Word of Faith movement what it is today. Although individual teachings range from completely heretical to completely ridiculous, what follows is the basic theology most Word of Faith teachers align themselves with. And every single one of those names I read you, they're all on television, or at least they have been in the past, and they continue to spew this stuff uh, throughout the world. At the heart of the Word of Faith movement is the belief in the force of faith. The force of faith. I'm just going to tell you, if someone, if their only conversation, when the guy gets up and he's a preacher, all he's going to tell you he's an expert on faith and he's going to talk to you all about faith, that's your first warning, okay? That's your, I'm just telling you, that's your first warning. The Bible speaks about faith, but these guys have something to say that the Bible does not say about faith. They're supposedly the faith experts. So they refer to faith as a force. It is believed words, our words, beloved, can be used to manipulate the faith force. I feel like I'm talking in Star Wars terminology, and thus actually create what they believe the scripture promises, and they believe it promises to every Christian health and wealth. How do you obtain that health and wealth? By manipulating the faith force through your words. Laws supposedly governing the faith force are said to operate independently of God's sovereign will. Eh! Nothing operates independently of God's sovereign will. And that God himself is subject to these laws. Even God is subject to this. (laughs) Which, in effect, ultimately makes God subject to you. This is nothing short of idolatry, turning our faith and, by extension, ourselves into God little g. From here, its theology just strays further and further from Scripture. It claims that God created human beings in his literal, physical image as little gods. Before the fall, humans had the potential to call things into existence by using the faith force. After the fall, humans, this is all not biblical, humans took on Satan's nature and lost the ability to call things into existence. Ah, shucks. That's what we lost. Ah. In order to correct this situation, oh, good. Jesus Christ gave up his divinity and became a man, died spiritually, took Satan's nature upon himself. No, he did not. Went to hell, was born again, and rose from the dead, that part's true, but not with God's nature. He was God. He was God. After this, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to replicate the incarnation in believers so they could become little gods as God had originally intended. Following the natural progression of these teachings, so get this, get this, Jesus came and died so that we could have what we had before the fall, which was the ability as little gods to manipulate the faith force. Uh-huh. You know, I yeah, I do get worked up about this stuff. Following the natural progression of these teachings as little gods, we again have the ability to manipulate the faith force and guess what? Become prosperous in all areas of our life. Illness, sin, and failure. So you know what, folks? All, all the sick people that are home right, right now, they obviously are not using the faith force in the way that they should. But look at you guys. Good job. Good job. <laughs> So illness, sin, and failure, those are all the result of a lack of faith. That's the, that's the worst part of this teaching. That's the worst part of this teaching. Because it's, you know, it's your problem. That's why you're in the situation you're in, you're just not, you're not, you know, manipulating the faith force as you should. If, you, if, you're, if, you, if you're in poverty, it's because you're not manipulating the faith force. If you're sick or you have a disease, you're dying, it's because you're, you're not manipulating the faith force force. This is the part that really uh, angers my soul. And of course, uh, and are remedied by confession, claiming God's, all these things are remedied by confession, and claiming God's promises for oneself into existence. Simply put, the Word of Faith movement exalts man to God's status and reduces God to man's status. Needless to say, this is a false representation of what Christianity is all about. Obviously, Word of Faith teaching does not take into account what is found in Scripture. Personal revelation, hear this, Personal revelation, not scripture, is highly relied upon in order to come up with such absurd beliefs, which is just one more proof of its heretical nature. What do I mean by that? It's what Eric spoke of this morning concerning Colossians. Personal revelation. I am receiving personal revelation from God. And here it is. That's how all of these faith teachers talk. So who's to question them? They have a direct line with God that you don't have, I guess. They don't. And they receive this nonsense about this faith force, and then they spew it on the, the crowds. And, and so instead of subjecting themselves fully and completely to what the Word of God says, they, they are directed and guided by this personal personal revelation that they receive. It's like Gnosticism. It's that same idea that there's this higher secret knowledge that some people have, but others don't within the Christian community. And uh, if you tap into it, whoa! You know, the doors of riches and prosperity are open to you. Anyway. Uh, The word of faith in Romans is not that. (laughs) Okay? Okay? And uh, like I said, through TV, radio, and Internet, many have been exposed to and influenced by... Uh, this teaching, and sadly, beloved, many are just unaware. I hear Christians who may have, may not, subs- wouldn't subscribe to any of those things I just said, but they speak in a way that reflects some of this word of faith movement teaching. And so we need to be careful. We need to be careful. Always checking ourselves. Always checking ourselves against what the word of God actually says. What it actually says. Is how I think biblical? Is how I speak biblical? Huh? is how I feel is it biblical, is it biblical. So always, always test everything, even what I say, against the inerrant and authoritative word of God. All right, beloved? There's my word to you as we begin this new year. There are countless deceivers and false teachers in our world. All right, for context, we are going to begin our reading in verse 1 of chapter 10. Verse 1 of chapter 10. Uh, last week's message was titled "Religious but Lost." Religious but Lost." If you weren't here, I hope you'll uh, go online and, and, and listen to that. We cover verses one through four for that sermon. Also, I just want you to remember that chapters nine through eleven of Romans, just so you understand the context, are primarily about Israel. They are primarily about Israel, the nation of Israel. And chapter 10, the one we're in now, is primarily about Israel's failure to believe or embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and be saved. It's about their failure. And Paul's explaining that. Why didn't they believe? Why did they turn away from Christ? Why did they reject their Messiah? All right. Beginning in verse 1. Brothers, brothers of chapter 10. My heart's desire and prayer to God for them. Quick quiz. Who is the them? Israel, right. We know that because if you just look up to a couple of verses before, chapter 9, verse 31, he's talking about Israel. He's continuing to talk about Israel as we step into chapter 9 or 10. Okay, so it's Israel. His brethren according to the flesh. So his prayer to God for them is what? That they may be saved. They may be saved. For I bear them witness, Paul says, that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own. Question, how did the Jew attempt to establish his own righteousness? Speak back to me. Huh? Through the law, through the keeping of the law, through their obedience to the law. Okay? So good, this is all from last week. Seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, or the righteousness that comes from God by way of grace through faith in Christ. Verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who what? Believes, believes. And I said last week that you could understand verse 4 to be saying that Christ means the end of the struggle for righteousness by the law for everyone who believes in him. Beloved, as I've said many times as we've made our way through the book of Romans, it is not the law but only Christ who can provide the righteousness or the righteous status we need as sinners in order to be made perfectly right with God or in order to be saved, in order to be saved. All right, let's continue reading. Verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be saved. It's a wonderful text, beloved. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to begin, just begin because we're not going to make it uh, through the entire message. I don't even know how far. I have a stopping point. This is going to be a two-parter is what I'm telling you. I have a stopping point. But the stopping point, I might have to stop before that as well. So we'll see what happens. We're going to begin to consider two aspects of the gospel so that we might better know and understand God's way of salvation. Very simple. It is important that we know and understand God's way of salvation. Is it not? Why? Well, here's one reason. We are responsible for proclaiming it. God has called us to proclaim God's way of salvation to this lost world. So we better be proclaiming it rightly. Beyond that, I need to know it. I need to know the truths of it because in them I find joy everlasting. I find hope. I find that peace that only God can give through his great salvation. And as I know it and understand it, I am delighted in it. All right, so two aspects. The gospel is readily accessible. And second, the gospel brings salvation to everyone who believes it who believes it. So I'll explain this as we go. Look back at verse 5, if you would. Continuing his thought, Paul's thought, from verse 4 concerning the righteousness for all who believe, which is what he says in verse 4. Continuing that thought, Paul says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Paul draws this, this statement here at the end of verse 5, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. He draws that from the Old Testament, specifically Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. Leviticus 18, verse 5. There we see God, in that chapter of Leviticus, we see God through Moses commanding the nation of Israel to follow and keep the rules and statutes that he had given them and says to them that if a person does them, if he does them, he shall live by them. He shall live by them. Now, what point is Paul trying to make here in Romans? What is he he doing? Why is he citing this passage? Why is he drawing out this language? Well, in Galatians chapter 3, and this is how we're going to help determine what the passage means. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul, Paul also cites this passage, Leviticus 18.5. So would you turn there to Galatians chapter 3? It's to your right. If you're using those uh, blue Bibles, it's page 973. and seventy three We're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 3, just a couple of verses. I just want you to see it. So let me give you context here. In this chapter of Galatians, in the entire chapter Paul is emphasizing the fact that one does not enter into a saving relationship with God through their obedience to God's law or through law-keeping, but rather it is only through faith. It is only through faith. Uh, You will find many similarities between Galatians and the book of Romans. In fact, in many cases you can... You better understand Galatians by understanding Romans. You better understand Romans by understanding the book of Galatians. All right, so that's the context. So in other words, it is not by doing, but by believing that a person is made and remains right with God. Did you hear me? It is not by doing, but by believing that a person remains and is made right with or is made and remains right with God. Now, Paul says this, look at verse 12 of Galatians chapter 3. He says this in chapter 3, verse 12. But the law is not of faith. The law is not of faith. Uh, the NIV says, or not based on faith. The law is not of faith. It's not based on faith. Rather, you want to know what the law is? This is the law. The one who does them, who keeps the rules and statutes of the law, the one who does them shall live by them. The one who does them shall live by them. So the law, listen, this is what Paul's saying. The law, in effect, says, do, do, and you will live. Okay? Do, and you will live. The principle, then, we find in the law is that any blessing that might come, from the law is entirely contingent upon obedience, upon obedience. You with me? Any blessing that might come from the law is entirely contingent upon obedience. The law never says, believe and you will live, but rather do, okay? The emphasis here is on doing, Do, and you will live. The law, as Paul says, is not of faith. It's not of faith. It's not based on faith. You ready? So then all those who attempt to seek a saving relationship with God through the law. There's people that do that, right? People are still doing that today. All those who do that as Israel mistakenly did and as many Jews continue to do and did, all that do that obligate themselves to seek that relationship through doing or through their obedience to the law. You understand? The law doesn't say believe and live. The law says do. You are obligated under the law to comply in order to, be, to receive any blessing under the law. But here's the serious problem with that, beloved. The serious problem with that, you may already know it. You know what else the Bible tells us about the law? It tells us that a curse rests on the one who fails to meet God or perform the law's unyielding demands. A curse. Okay? Look look at the verses right before verse 12. Let your eyes float back up to actually verse 10. Watch what Paul says here. This is leading up to verse 12. For all who rely on works of the law... In what sense are they relying on works of the law or on their obedience to the law? They're relying on it in order to be made right with God or be made righteous before God. They are are relying on their doing of the law to be saved. Okay? All who rely on the works of the law, Paul says, are on their way to heaven Is that what it, Look at the text. What does it say? Curse. And yet, the reason I say that is because that is what many people believe, that they are, by relying on their works of the law, their obedience to the law, they are on their way to heaven. They are making their way there. And yet, the Bible says they're under a curse. Why? Paul tells us, for it is written. Look back at the text. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things. Not some things, all things written in the book of the law and do them, and do them. They're cursed. So then Paul says in verse 11, (laughs) now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Isn't that evident, beloved? Why don't people understand that? Why don't they see that? It is evident who does all things. Who complies perfectly with all things in the law? Who? Paul says it's evident that no one's justified before God. No one is declared right before God by their law keeping. Then he says what? For the righteous shall live by faith. We looked at that in the beginning, chapter one of uh, verse, or chapter one of Romans, and then he says this: "But the law is not of faith; the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them." The Jewish people sought a relationship with God through a righteousness based on the law. Listen, rather than submit to the righteousness of God in Christ, that is received only by what. Faith! By faith! And Paul was explaining to them in Romans why that was a terrible and tragic mistake. Their mistake, beloved, is the same mistake people continue to make even today. Even today. Going back to Romans 10 and beginning in verse 6 now, in contrast to the righteousness that is based upon law-keeping, as we see in verse 5, Paul turns now to the righteousness based upon faith. The righteousness based upon faith. And that brings me to the first point in the outline, that the gospel is readily accessible. Or you might say that the opportunity to be saved is entirely within the reach of every sinner. It's entirely within their reach. It was certainly within the reach of the nation of Israel. Look back at the text. And, and, and this, uh, these verses are not easy to understand, okay? Let me just say that right up front, but I'm, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best to, to, make it, to try to make it understandable, okay? So here we go. Verse 6. But the righteousness based on faith says, all right, he's con- contrasting that with the righteousness that's based on the law. The righteousness based on faith says this. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. What is he talking about? We'll get to it, okay? Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? What does the righteousness based on faith say? It says this. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. What word is he talking about? Oh, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Beloved, what's the word of faith? The gospel, okay? You see why I started with that, why that was so important? All right, it'll make sense here, I hope, in a second. In describing to us what this righteousness based on faith says, he personifies faith. He, he speaks of it in, in a human way, so it's speaking now. It's speaking. okay. It's saying something. What does it say? In describing what it says, Paul uses language now drawn from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. More specifically from chapter 30, verses 12 through 14 of Deuteronomy. Guess what? I want you to turn your Bibles again, all right? So I want to look at that. It's, uh, you know, in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. It's page uh, 172 in those blue Bibles. And I want to show you that text there, because that's where Paul's drawing the language from. We're going to begin reading in verse 11 of 30, okay? Okay? Here's the context. Moses is speaking to the nation of Israel, to the nation of Israel. The lawgiver, Moses, and the fact that he gave the law that God gave to him to the nation of Israel. He speaks and he says in verse 11, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off, verse 12, explaining that. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. All right, so there's there's where he's drawing from. In Romans chapter 10, he's drawing from this section in Deuteronomy, okay? Now, I believe the basic idea that Moses was communicating here to the nation of Israel is this. That God's will for them, God's will for them, which was Clearly expressed in his law, that very law that God gave to Israel through his servant Moses, or the commandment as it's sometimes referred to, was neither incomprehensible or too hard for them to understand, it was not that, nor was it inaccessible or far off. It wasn't far off, it wasn't somewhere or they had to go find it. So then, listen, they could not say that they didn't know what God expected of them. We don't know what to do. No, no, Moses says. You don't need to go up into heaven, send someone up there to to find out what God wants you to do, and you don't need to cross the sea. It's not hiding over there somewhere. No, it's near you. It's, it's, It's right there. It's in your mouth and in your heart's, so that you can do it. So and, and who made it, who made it available to them? God did. God brought this to them. He gave it to them. God's word was was very near to the nation. And when, when Moses says it's in your it's in your mouth, it's in a sense that it was regularly spoken of by and among the people, the law of God. This was a, a, a part of their daily conversation. It was, it was on their tongues. He goes on to say it was in their hearts in the sense that it was known by them. They knew it. It's, when you think of heart, their mind, they knew it. They were familiar with it. Why? Again, why? Because God had made his will for them known through the giving of his law. All right? That's Deuteronomy. Simple. So don't go saying you, you don't know. You do know. Now you have a responsibility to submit to what you know. Okay? You with me? That's Deuteronomy. So why is Paul borrowing this, borrowing this thought from Deuteronomy? In what sense does it now apply to what he's talking about in Romans 10? Okay, well, this is what I believe. I, this is how I understand it. I think that he is communicating in Romans 10. listen, that God had likewise, had likewise made the gospel, or the word of faith, as Paul speaks of it, known and readily available, meaning that the gospel is not far off or inaccessible. To humanity, certainly not to Israel, but rather it was easily accessible. It was right there. It was within their reach. So then God's way of salvation, beloved, is not hidden. It's not hidden, and it's not unavailable. It does not have to be sought out for or searched for. One does not have to go on some incredible quest to find how one must be saved. Huh? You hear people doing this kind of stuff. I'm going, I'm going on a quest. A quest for God. Fool, listen. God has come to us. He's come to us. He has come to us in the divine person and saving work of Jesus Christ. He's already here. It's available. Christ is available. And the word of faith has been proclaimed, beloved. And that was the case when Paul was writing Romans. It had been proclaimed faithfully to the nation of Israel and was going out into the entire known world at that time. It's known. It's available. It's within reach. Look back again now at what Paul says here. Romans 10, continuing. That idea, that's what I think Paul's communicating now. We'll look at it closer. Verse 6 and 7. The righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? Don't do that. That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now this is interesting. So, He's borrowing this idea, I believe, from Deuteronomy, language from there, that same idea that that the gospel, applying it to the gospel, it's available, it's accessible, God's way of salvation is within reach of all. And now he takes some of this terminology that Moses was using about going up into heaven and finding God's law or his will for the people, right? He now applies that to Christ, he applies that idea to Christ because he's talking about the gospel, right? So watch. So one writer says this, and I'll kind of go through it. To ask such questions such as this, who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss? To ask those questions would be absurd as they are unnecessary. There is no need whatsoever for us to scale the heights or plumb the depths in search of Christ for he has already come, died, and risen, and so is accessible to us. Accessible to us. Another writer says this, As the Israelite did not need to ascend into heaven to find God's commandment, as we see in Moses and Deuteronomy, so Paul suggests there is no need to ascend into heaven to bring Christ down. For in the incarnation, the Messiah, God's Son, has been truly brought down already. God, from his side, has acted to make himself and his will for his people known. Or, yeah, for his people known. His people now have no excuse for not responding. They have no excuse. That's that's where Paul's going to end up here in Romans chapter 10. He's going to say, God has done everything to bring salvation to the nation. He put it right there on their doorstep. But because of their pride and stubborn obstinance, because of their rebellion, they refused to take that salvation. They refused to believe. They refused to believe. You may have noticed, by the way, you're watching closely, that in verse 7, that Paul talks about descending into the abyss. Did you see that? The abyss, Uh, and you could understand that the word just means like a deep place or bottomless pit, okay? That's the idea, that's the the thinking of it. Paul doesn't say, as it does in Deuteronomy, going over the sea, going over the sea. Talks about ascending into heaven, but in Deuteronomy, Moses says going over the sea, right? So the idea is I got to it's like i got to jump across the pond, you know, i got to go over there across the great ocean, something way far out over there to try to get it. That's where it is. But Paul doesn't use that language, going over the sea. Instead, he changes it to the abyss. The abyss is one of, um, the idea is one of depth there, right? So this is go down deep instead of one of distance over the sea. You with me? Why does Paul do that? Well... Most Bible commentators think it was so that he could make another application of the Deuteronomy language or text to Christ. So he can make an application here to Christ as he did in verse 6. As he did in verse 6. So then as he could use the fact of the incarnation, God came down in Christ, God, man, God in the flesh with us, the incarnation, as he used that reality to suggest the foolishness of going up into heaven to find Christ, he came down already. It is then also unnecessary to go into the abyss, to that bottomless pit, to that deep hole in the ground or the earth, to bring Christ up from the dead because God has already done that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The bottom line is Christ has come, died, and been raised. And now, and now, readily accessible through faith. Through faith. That's it. Through faith. So just as we saw in Deuteronomy, that Israel could certainly not plead the excuse that they did not know God's will for them. Paul is saying in Romans, listen, that they cannot plead ignorance of God's revelation in Jesus Christ. They cannot. He has revealed Christ to them. He has revealed his way of salvation to them. God has made his salvation readily known. And it is a salvation, beloved, that comes through faith alone in Christ alone. It is a righteousness based on faith. Now, in verses 6 through 7, after the righteousness based on faith warns the reader what not to say, in verse 8, Paul tells us what it does say, right? So look back at the text. So it tells you, it prohibits you, don't say this, don't say this, because that's not the case. You don't need to go looking for it. It's here, it's here. But what does it say? What does the word, what does the righteousness based on faith say? It says this the word is near you. Right? Again, borrowing that language from Deuteronomy. Again, when Moses used the language of speaking of the law or God's commandment, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And that's why Paul says here, that is, by this I mean the word of faith. The word of faith is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That very word, the gospel that we proclaim, that we've been telling you about. right, so... This is the primary point that I believe Paul wants to get across. The gospel, the word of faith, the message concerning salvation that requires a response of faith. That word or the word that Paul and the other apostles preached was like God's law that Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy. It was and is easily accessible for God had brought it near in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of the gospel. How near to them was it, beloved? How near to them was it? What's the text say? It was in their mouths and in their hearts. One, one pastor commenting on this uh, passage, he just says this, he says, as speaking for Paul, it's near you, how near? It's in your mouth, it's, it's familiar to you. The, the message of, of salvation, beloved, is a familiar discussion I mean, and then he goes on to say, people, even in our own society, listen, in our own society, in in America today, are like those Jews to whom Paul speaks or refers here. Many people in our society know the gospel. Maybe not in its fullness, maybe not completely, but they know it. It's, It's not some foreign thing to them. It's common knowledge, beloved, that Jesus came that he died, that he rose. People reject it, okay? They reject it. They refuse to accept the ramifications of it. They refuse to believe all that that means, but they know. I mean, God did not do this in a corner, right? He didn't do it in some little hidden part. He did it and made it known to the entire world. It's in their mouth. It's common discussion. It's familiar stuff. We celebrate Christmas. I know, we're tr- I know our culture is trying to remove any, any part of the gospel in, in, in any religious holiday that we celebrate, right? Don't talk about Christ. Don't talk. But it, they can't get away from it, man. It's Even in, even in the secular Christmas songs that, that play on the radio, You know what they're about? I mean, yeah, there's some that are about Christmas trees and all that stuff. I get that. Or giving presents or Santa Claus. I get that. But there's a good portion of these babies that are about who? Christ! His birth! And what else? His salvation! Blasting across 103.5, a secular radio station, for all to hear. And that's the same in all the states across the United States. Listen, it's it's familiar stuff God had, as he goes on to say, has made the word of incarnation and the word of resurrection a familiar word. I know again, Easter, right? Satan's ploy. Can we, can we remove any talking about Easter from the resurrection of Christ? Let's make the entire thing about hyperactive bunnies. I, you know what I'm saying? Or that kind of thing. So, but yet, people know. People know, not everyone, but I'm saying there's a general knowledge in our society. Christ came, Jesus. He came. He was a man. He came. He died. And yes, those folks say he rose again. Yeah, he did. So he goes on to say, it's not only in your mouth, it's in your heart. People think about it. Jewish people read about it. They read about it. Now, going back to that first century context, they heard about it. They talked about it. The truth's familiar. What truth is it? It's the word of faith. The truth about salvation by faith, salvation by believing, not attaining. And Moo says, th- or I'm sorry, one commentary, one commentator says this: all that is now required of human beings, all that is now required of human beings, is the response of faith. That's all that's required. We're going to stop there. You know what? Let me just read verse 9. I'm not going to... I was going to comment on verse 9. I was going to talk more about this, but I want to stop there. We'll come back. But I just want to read. I don't want... I would like to close out the service with this. Verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... Oh, my! That's a loaded statement, beloved. I... See... I, sh- I want to talk about this bad. I want to talk about this. Because, because what we believe, when I say it's, it's not a matter of attaining, it's a matter of believing, right? Salvation comes through believing. But believing what? Well, believing some pretty significant things about this one who came and died and is resurrected. He is Lord We'll have to save that for next week. That, but that, that idea, that concept, those who believe that, it can't but not have an impact on how they now live their lives. Huh? It can't but not have an impact. You can't believe Jesus is Lord and then continue to run your own life. You don't really believe Jesus is Lord we'll talk about that more next week but and believe in your heart that god raised him from the dead you know what you will be saved you will be saved oh i hope you're i hope you're believing that i hope you're believing that this morning we're going to we're going to pause and we'll come back to that next week i'm going to tell you what i told you last week or uh, encourage you that is to to find an, find an unbelieving friend or neighbor and just give it a shot, beloved. Give it a shot. Invite them to come to church. Invite them to come to church. Say even if you've known them for like five, ten years and you've never even talked to them about Christ and you're like, now how do I do it? Because that's a dilemma, right? Well, I, how am I going to do this now? Just say... Hey, I know I've never I know I've never talked to you about church or anything like that, but I'm just I want to extend an open invitation to you. I would love for you to just to come. My pastor is going to be talking about Jesus and stuff. And and it's it was a really, you know, however you want to frame it, my friends, right? But just invite Invite. If you'd like to know more, I would love to have you just come. In fact, he asked me to invite you. There you go. You put it on me. That's what I tell my wife to do. And you don't want, you know, put it on your husband, baby. Put it on your husband. Blame it on me. And he he challenged me. There you go. He challenged me. I'm just going to challenge you right now so it can be true. I'm challenging you to invite your unbelieving friends and neighbors and co workers, one of them, to church next Sunday. I'm challenging you all right, as part of your New Year's resolu- resolution to, to do what the pastor challenges you to do. That's even better yet, all right? So I accepted <laughs> as a New Year's resolution the challenge, and so, friend, uh, I want to do this, and I want to just invite you to church, all right? Would you come this Sunday? If, if, if not, it's an open invitation, and you never know what would the Lord do with that. I don't know. Maybe they'll come. Maybe they'll hear the gospel. Maybe they'll be saved.